Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited, um, as we usually are excited to have guests on this show. We're very lucky to speak to lots of amazing people week by week. But today is a very special day because we have Professor Gary Young on the show, who is Professor of Sociology at the University of Manchester, a journalist, author and broadcaster. If you are avid listener of the show, you'll know that this is quite an exciting episode. Man, shook out of here. Shook, <laughs> shook out of here. You hit me. <laughs> got Gary Young in the studio. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. We're going to focus today's episode on a recent programme you've done with BBC4 called Empty Cases. And it's where you focus on the British Museum's place in the UK post Black Lives Matter. And I think indirectly talking about cultural institutions is something that we've done a little bit on the show, T, but it's definitely something we can do a little bit more of. And we're on the show inspired by, yeah, organisations like Museum Detox, the Museum of British Colonialism. Like there's so many people that have been doing some brilliant work, really looking at what the museum and these institutions mean in Britain. But this documentary Gary like the program I just thought was so brilliant and I need to just start off by saying my favorite line from the show was when you said to the guy that works in the British Museum how can you loan me something you stole and I guess that kind of forms the conversation that we're going to have today really about the British Museum's place and how it connects to wider conversations about extraction colonialism and empire Mm. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> but T, you're doing a bit of research. I listened to your radio show. It made me do a bit of digging. So I started looking at the kind of Hans Salone and he's the founder of the museum. And so he spent a lot of time in Jamaica as a doctor for a, a, the Duke of Albuquerque. I can't pronounce that right. But he was a doctor. That's when he got most of the pieces together for the collection that will be his uh, plant collection that's in the museum. So he started, but also while he was there, he took a big interest in what he called them um, artificial curiosities, i.e. black people <laughs> and their cultural constructs. Right. And okay. so he started prim- studying the primitives. So his whole basis was based at a very colonial time, the kind of beginnings of the colonial empire and industry in Jamaica. Mm. So this guy is a product of empire and his baby, the British Museum, is that. Thing. It's the embodiment of that thing. He's kind of based his collection on the idea of the encyclopedia from Voltaire, the mm. idea of human universal knowledge, the idea that the West should know everything and be a master of knowledge. That kind of notion runs through that museum. I mean, it's a funny notion, isn't it, of universal knowledge and then who, who's in the universe and who's not in the universe and who, who gets looked at who gets to do the looking because I didn't know that about Jamaica and his history there but one can guess an aspect of kind of his historical trajectory just by the way that the museum is set up and so there is this 
it's a constant thing that we have about whether we are counted in or out of what's the universe or what constitutes knowledge, whether we have knowledge or are people to be known about, whether we are actually kind of, whether the alchemy that creates this thing called knowledge is something that we help produce or that we're just a product of. That idea of what knowledge is, what constitutes knowledge, and the idea of what a museum is, their collection of knowledge. And so when I collect stuff, it's important because it's how I order it. So the act of collecting is an important part of that knowledge process or making what knowledge is. And so these guys are getting to set the agenda to tell people what knowledge is and how I center myself in relation to that knowledge. They would say, arguably, right now, I think there's two camps. There's a kind of national heritage view that objects have a certain cultural and national boundary. These objects represent a nation's history or cultural heritage versus the kind of new new way of seeing things. A museum is a world heritage place. It's a universal place where knowledge has been a kind of de-anchored from its place and it can be put on a world stage that, so it belongs to everyone. That's how they would kind of see themselves now, I, I would argue. And, and the notion that knowledge might be something dynamic. That yes. It's not just kind of, well, we know that about the 19th century or we know that about, but that kind of our knowledge of the world and the objects in it can change and the, the kind of objects, while the objects themselves may not change, their meaning Mm-hmm. can be, you know, this is a stick. Okay, well, we have a knowledge of what a stick is. This was a stick that they used to beat slaves with. Well, that changes the nature of the stick. This was a stick that the British used to beat slaves with in Jamaica. The stick can become something else. And some of that is about acquiring knowledge. There are things that we didn't know that we find out. But some of it is about releasing knowledge. <laughs> there are things that were known, but just not presented one of the things that definitely came across for me and I think this is always really powerful that you do in your shows and writing Gary is sort of connecting the individual to the structural so talking about yeah growing up in Stevenage being part of Britain having a heritage which is part of the British Empire and how we've lived in this country and been in this country and kind of been lied to about where we've come from and how we ended up being here. Of course, there's always been people that are trying to bring that knowledge to the forefront throughout history, but these institutions have played their part in, yeah, basically gaslighting us constantly. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I love this documentary so much, because it was kind of just speaking truth to power about this stuff. And again, there are lots of people that have been doing this, but talking about, you talking about, yeah, growing up in Stevenage made me think about, yeah, growing up in the West Midlands and going to museums there and there being Cadbury World, the Avoncroft Museum, the Black Country Museum. And these were museums whose heritage and their production was bound by empire, whether that's cocoa farming or the making of weapons. They never sort of tell the truth in that way. They never make those connections to Mm. how we are part of that. It's almost like, as Tiso said, these institutions present objects in abstraction to history and how it's connected to the country's wealth. And there are a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, the fact of me coming to Stevenage was from Stevenage, which is about 30 miles north of London, but was a new town created after the war, is relevant be- because my understanding coming from Stevenage was that Stevenage had no history. It was invented in 1948. And then if you add to that being child of a recent, relatively recent immigrant, where you're not 
really, I mean, I, I knew that my mum was from Barbados, I knew my grandma's in Barbados, but broadly speaking, I didn't understand myself as having any any history, really, in this country, or kind of any history at all. Then I learned, really quite late on, I did an essay for Granta, probably whenever the Olympics were, so almost 10 years ago now, and I started finding out about Stevenage and how they built it thinking... Lewis Silkin, who built it, who was the town's, he said, people will come from all over the world to see what we will do here, which they did not, by the way. <laughs> and that kind of, the idea of people flocking to Stevenage to kind of, for, for clues, for excellence. It was built in the same year as the NHS. It was a kind of fundamental part of the kind of post-war consensus. It was the mm-hmm. idea that people who were bombed out of their slums could have a house with a garden front and back and some green and uh, it, I think I'm pretty sure it was 100% council housing when it started then I think of my childhood and the fact that for all of the racism and all that that one can talk about all of the schools were fine there were no no-go areas it was well they weren't brilliant nothing was brilliant but everything was fine and then I think of who's come out of Stevenage Lewis Hamilton now, if you've ever been to Stevenage, there's a lot of roundabouts. I don't know how he learned to drive so fast. <laughs> Lewis Hampton, Giles Torreira, who was in Hamilton, who won the Olivier Award. Ashley Young. The city's had two black mayors and a black head of police. And I'm thinking maybe that's got something to do with the lasting kind of remnants of that post-war consensus, which is now mm-hmm. kind of falling apart. And it's got a food bank. And so I start to kind of think of myself in relation to this place that I thought had no history, but actually it's kind of deeply embedded in British history and maybe can explain quite a lot. But there's something else that you said there about kind of growing up in the West Midlands and those museums, which I think is really interesting about the debates that have taken place uh, during this kind of extended Black Lives Matter period, which is this notion peddled by Boris Johnson, among others, who Paul Gilroy calls Mr. Toad, who I think is quite funny, that kind of, that taking down the statues is somehow erasing history. And I'm thinking, no, 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 we want to fill the history in. We are the ones who want to tell more history. You are the ones that are erasing history. Let's just kind of, let's just put the statues aside for a minute. Why do you not want to tell the story of British colonialism? Why would you not want to do that? How else would you explain how the great got put into Great Britain? Why would you not want to tell the history of British slavery? It's them that want to amputate the history. And it's us, actually, that are trying to fit it in. Now, obviously, the statues, that's not history. That's memorialising, and you can that's about who you what you value. The notion that they are the ones that want to tell British history is farcical. If they were telling it, we wouldn't need to pull down a statue. I couldn't agree more, Gary. I think that's such a, a poignant way of putting it. And it's actually a, it's such a clear way of putting it. As One of the things you did in the documentary and what you just said then as well is like, we want them to start telling the truth. If you're saying you don't want these statues to be pulled down, or if you're saying you don't want to give back the men in bronze, say why it is you don't want to do that. 
like stop mm. telling us that it's it's for a different reason or it is some sort of universal objective reason or it's something that's attached to our patriotism or something like that it's because you don't want to tell the truth because you're worried about perhaps, I don't know what are they worried about like when, when you were talking then Gary I'm thinking okay why don't you want to tell the history what is it like let's get down to the nitty-gritty why don't you want to tell or complete the narrative and mm. I can understand the, the project. The project of nationalism demands a particular narrative, right? Mm. But if we're talking about a global world now, so we can talk about these things in a more nuanced way. And I think for someone like myself, like I grew up in London, and when I encountered these museums, like, like you, something resonated when you said, Gary. I, I didn't have a sense of myself. Where did I belong in this narrative? Mm. I didn't see myself in any of the narrative. So the ancient ancient Egypt is ancient Egypt. Hmm. And then there's a massive gap and I don't see myself. And I, I never see myself. I just see maybe the 1948 Tilbury Docks or hmm. I might see Rosa Parks, which has nothing hmm. to do with me, right? <laughs> so I, in this narrative, I walk into this place of knowledge and I do not see myself. And it's not until I have to dig deeper and be proactive. And I understand knowledge is a proactive uh, process. But it's not until I start digging myself that I start discovering myself that I, I discover Fanon, Pill Gilroy, Stuart Hill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is one of the problems I think, especially for young black people in, especially in the post BLM space. How, where do, where do I seek myself? Country of my birth, it has a duty to, a duty of care to me, right? Mm. I'm part of that post-war consensus, right? Crazy, crazy to grave. You need to look after me, man. So I, I would go even further, and I would say. No one can see themselves because it's not true. Mm. The white kids who go in there, they can't see themselves. There is a more obvious place for them in the kind of imagined narrative. Mm. Kind of, but actually, in terms of kind of how they got here, not physically, not geographically, but socially, kind of politically, the story is so distorted. If you can't talk about how we paid for the industrial revolution you can't talk about kind of why we would have had a seat at the table and why we would have had a seat at the table of the united nations which was because of the empire then kind of actually it doesn't none of it makes sense so then we're all forced to imagine ourselves in or out of that story so it's kind of it's completely distorting for i think for everyone now for us there are these kind of added layers. The interview that you're referring to, Chantel, with um, Hartwig Fisher, who's the head of the British Museum, kind of exemplifies this thing where they don't want to name it. They don't want to call it the house of stolen stuff. How did you get to rule the world? Well, we invaded countries and we stole their things and we stole their people and then we sold their people and we made a bunch of money. How did you put the great in Great Britain? And so we have this very weird thing when it comes to a personal connection to a collective history where people will say, we won the war, even if they didn't fight. They'll say, we won the World Cup, even if they didn't play. But if you say, who invaded? They'll say, well, it wasn't me. Mm. I wasn't there. And so you have this kind of, um, once again, a kind of amputation of the personal from the collective, this very selective notion of where you stand in the, in the history. What people fear, I think, what white people fear, is that the story that we will tell will be a story where all white people are horrible 
and evil and so on, when actually it will partly be a story of some white people being very, very brave and about kind of how societies are ordered. So there is this, I think that it comes from this fear of like, well, that history is going to be a downer. And it's like, well, imagine what it's like for us. It, maybe it is a downer, but let's just let's just tell the story. But it's interesting you're saying that, Gary. So when I was doing some reading, the idea of giving stuff back, they said maybe it will open up the floodgates and it will take everything back. And it made me think of like, the fear of white people that if we got power, we would do the same to them. Mm. That fear that somehow it's, it's going to be the reverse and it's all going to be all negative, all bad. No, this is it's an original of the story. It mm. fills out the story and it brings two or well, a couple of things into notion, the idea of belonging, the idea of the identity, it, it, it makes that a fuller and more, more robust thing, I think, if you tell the whole story, good and bad. Yeah, and there was a bit that I think didn't make it into the radio programme where I felt, to be honest, and I may be doing him a disservice, but I felt like Hartwig Fisher was trying to farrakhan me a little bit because he was, talk- he was talking about like, Pretty much like that's not how we do things and it can't be done. You know, we can't, we can't just. And I said, but that's not true, is it? I mean, it has been done and it was done, of course, with things that were stolen from Jews during the Holocaust. Yeah. And then he tried to make out in some way that I was either belittling the Holocaust. You know, he said, if you're talking about a single event, you know, kind of. And, and, and I said, look, I'm not comparing the tragedies and the atrocities because I, I don't have to. And actually, there's enough misery to go around. It's not a zero-sum game. What I am comparing is the process. So there is a process. You have done it. There is a line. There's always this thing where people say, where do you draw the line? And I think, well, that's an interesting question, but let's not pretend that there isn't a line. You drew a line and you said, these things must go back. There must be a criteria for where the line is. So I'm wondering what the criteria is for drawing the line in a place where people in Benin don't get their stuff back. What is the logic? And of course, the logic is we don't have to and you can't make us. And um, uh, and once again, I think, well, then just own it. Just say that. Just say we stole it and we're keeping it. And, um, <laughs> and this is the house of stolen things. This is the museum of pillaged goods. And then... We all know where we stand, but you don't want to do that. You want to portray it as a house of universal knowledge and of kind of enlightenment values. And that's the lie. That's the lie. There's an interesting thing about Chomsky. He said, the thing is, you don't have to tell truth to power because power already knows the truth. (laughs) It's power that's telling everybody lies. It's like, you know you stole it. It's not new. You actually boast. You boasted about stealing it. So... Why are we pretending? Why are we pretending? That's a good question. That's a good question. Just going back quickly to the interview as well, like he was giving the reasons as to why they wouldn't give it back. And he was talking about there being gifts, things being stolen and things being quiet. And you basically said to him, okay, can we have a debate about which ones of these means that you can't give it back? And he basically said no. <laughs> yeah. He said no. And it's like, yeah. okay, so <laughs> so that's the line. Like, there are, particularly this year, for me personally, 
although I think I've been awake for a while, I've definitely had to come to terms with the fact that power does know their power and they know they're lying. I know that Mm. might sound really naive, but it's definitely something which I found quite troubling actually it's like oh no you actually know you're mugging me off you fully know Mm. this isn't like a fragility thing this is it's a dominance thing like you know what you're Mm. doing and I think that's what you've just articulated it perfectly with regards to how the interview went but he literally said it word for word one of the arguments that museums use is that now they hold they've had it for so long it's part of the national our national story now Mm. so to give it back would not make sense so the most obvious example is the Elgin marbles we've had it for so long it's ours now anyway, so why would you want it back? What is that thing, <laughs> just for the listeners that don't know? The Hearts of the Parthenon, which is a Greek monument of, of interest. It was shot off, taken by Lord Elgin, kept in his private collection and sold to the British Museum in 1816. Some of the kind of Egyptian stuff from the 1806 war have been there and they've been there for so long. The argument is, we've had it for so long, it's ours, so I'm not going to give it back. I've had it for so long, so why would you want it back? I mean, first of all, can you imagine that for anything else? <laughs> but that's my telly I know but I've had it for two years I broke into your house and I took your telly and I've been watching it for two years so it's basically my telly now uh-huh. but it's not it's my telly look you can see it's my telly it's got my name on it yeah. no backsies no <laughs> sorry it's, there's that but the other thing that they say which I think is kind of truly sinister is if they were legally acquired so, well the Jews were legally slaughtered um, slavery was legal, all sorts of things. It, it comes to that kind of David Brent thing before racism was bad. Yeah. You know, well, it was before. And it's like, well, <laughs> it was your laws. <laughs> it was your laws that kind of made that. I find that truly sinister because it creates a clear, clear line between legality and morality, a clear line, as though legality has nothing to do with what is morally right or wrong and just as we stole it fair and square mm-hmm. well, you can't steal something fair and square it don't work the museum's birth runs hand in hand with a, a load of legal laws that were kind of put into place to bring it to existence so mm. the british museum act of 1753 opens it to the public and it says the idea that these things are for public consumption but the notion of public is very limited it's limited to elites throughout the process and- it kind of mirrors a kind of use use of law to justify the basis of acquiring stuff. So how land was cheated from the natives in some places in Africa, I get them to sign contracts mm. to kind of use to acquire goods. Yeah. So it's the idea that I can use the law as a stick to acquire stuff legally. But again, it's how we're positioning law and what's legal. And what was mm. happening at the same time as well, the extraction of goods, but also the extraction of people. And it is, it's so similar. I guess differently emphasise the point that I was trying to make before, which is that it is all of our stories. It is the stories of the overwhelmingly white kids that I grew up with. It's the story of why we drink tea. <laughs> it's the story of where we got the sugar in the tea. It's... It's Jane Eyre and Vanity Fair. It's impossible to have a kind of any meaningful sense of like what Britain is like now or what what it has been like without these stories. And at the time, they were written in to the script. You know, that kind of throughout those kind of 19th century novels, people are going off to the Indies and coming back with things that are sweet and spicy and kind of um you know 
the, the is it Bertha, the woman in the tower in Jane Eyre? The kind of um, that that great line in Vanity Fair, which says um, where the dad tries to marry the son to uh, um, an heiress who's uh, mixed race, and uh, the son says she's the colour of mud, and the dad yeah. says, "What's a shade or two of tawny when there's a million on the table?" These were things that were kind of understood at the time. These are not new things. And so how do we, far from being like, you know, why are you bringing up old stuff? You know, you want to change our history. And I said, no, we we actually want to tell our history and make sense of our literature, of our culture, of these spaces, and they will make sense for all of us. But maybe, I was just thinking, maybe it's a story of, the story of the slow decline. So our national narrative just reflects the high points, right? And mm. so by, by the time we get 1945, no one talks about the slow decline, the deindustrialization, the decolonization. I think most GCSE history books, they point to the high points. I think we could all say we learned about the Tudors. All of us here, we learned this is a random thing, right? But it's always a high point. But this process of the slow decline, that's the that's the nuance that no one talks about. Mm. But this is what's happened. That's what that's the relevance, right? Well, and it's reflected in it's reflected in Brexit and the way that the way that we talk about a relationship with the rest of the world. The the fact that a significant portion of the leaders of the Brexit group came uh, either were raised and born in like Kenya or what was Rhodesia or I was reading a, a book about the campaign All Out War, I think it was, and. It just kept coming up, so-and-so, who was born in... And there are about sort of seven of the leading members of Brexit, including the kind of main bankrolling guy himself, yeah. who all grew up in in Africa, basically, or born in Africa, or have ties to Africa. And so, I mean, it really isn't just about um, scratching old wounds and people say, why, you know, why do you want to keep on talking about the past and it's like well the present don't make much sense without the past and actually here are some ways in which it concretely informs the present in this renewed post black lives matter movement thinking contextually about the uk how much longer can places like the british museum can those with the the links those with let's say just give the example that you gave of Brexit and their really intimate links to the powers with previous powers in the empire. How much longer can the lie go on for? Also wanted to ask you about cultural and political implications and what we saw in June 2020 um, in that renewed, renewed moment, particularly just think about the UK context, context here, because there was definitely a systematic white awakening, whether that has been tangible or will be tangible, I don't know. But it does feel like there is a slight shift in the way people are talking about stuff. And I think with the Empty Cases programme, it made me think, okay, how much longer is Gary going to have to debate with these people about, <laughs> about this? Because it feels like, even though we've got such a long way to go to improve everyone's material conditions, it feels like time is running out a little bit for these guys, or it's about to get even worse. And we Yeah. I mean, it can always get worse. It can always get worse, sadly. I mean, I think that racism, uh, just kind of at metaphor given that the times we're in, but that racism is a very hardy virus. 
and it adapts to the body politic. And the, the racism that we see now and that my children will experience will be very different from the racism that I experienced. That I think, for the most part, people are no longer saying, go back to where you came from. That would seem like a weird... Do you know what I mean? When I was growing up and there were there were no black players in the um in the British football team and there was kind of you know, it was so it takes on a, a different form in which it's kind of well, you're getting all our stuff or let's talk about Muslims and do it through you know, do it through the back door that way or our way of life or leave our statues alone or because in the seventies no one was defending no one was running up and defending Churchill. They didn't need to. You know, even the BMP would say in a way that the National Front wouldn't, we're not racist. We just think that white people deserve the same rights as and blah blah blah. So it kind of I doubt we'll be having this conversation. But so long as racism underpins the society that we live in, we're gonna be having some kind of conversation Sadly, for my lifetime, I wish that wasn't the case. I quite like playing chess. I quite <laughs> like box sets. There's other things that I would rather do than kind of debate elements of my existence with people who don't know enough. But uh, the flip side of that is that it has allowed me a critical kind of through race. It's allowed me a kind of critical kind of uh, lens through which to see kind of society in general. And then with regards to the kind of explosion that happened in the summer, I mean, I found it really fascinating. I went to, I live in um, Dalston, and I went to protest in Newington Green. I've never seen a protest there before. It was huge. It was really big. And a few things struck me. One was um, that I have no idea who called it. It was kind of going around on Facebook and, you know, my wife said, or someone said, oh, well, you know, let's, um, we should go to Newington Green. But the second one was no one was taking any names there. And and in a sense, it's, it's to some extent, it speaks to the fragility and the opportunity in the moment because there is a big constituency out there for anti-racism and it can be convened and, and was in different ways, both online and in reality, um, but I, I don't know whether it can be sustained. And that the, it felt to me like Black Lives Matter in Britain was kind of like a floating signifier that attached to all these different things. But that so it cleared space that I'm not sure that we've built on. And and I would just say what one other thing in relation to that, so because I don't feel pessimistic about it at all I feel like what's happened what is happening is a kind of form of pollination that this these things have landed in places in people's workspaces in people's book clubs in kind of their schools and is now kind of quite autonomously have has its own dynamic in a red like so a, a consciousness has been raised and black people have been emboldened a significant section of the white population have become newly receptive. They were latent and now they're actively receptive to 
understanding. And then, of course, within that, there's some opportunism and all of that. But I give myself as an example here that in the late 80s, there were riots in Britain. And as a result, in a response to those riots, the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, looked around at the journalism pool and said, there aren't enough black journalists, so we should set up a scheme so that there can be more black journalists. Not The Guardian, just anywhere. And I was one of the first recipients of that scheme. It's not like the people, if you asked in 1988 or 1999, a couple of years after the riots, well, what did they achieve? Well, of course, first of all, they didn't go writing so I could get a well-paid job. We know that. But it's not as though you would say, well, you know, I think in maybe four or five years' time, maybe there'll be a new generation of black journalists that will come up because there were a few of us that came through that. In 99, the McPherson report happened. That was the year I got my column. It was the year Yasmin Adebayo-Brown got her column. It was the year Steve McQueen won that major art award. The year before was Chris Afili. The year after, Zadie Smith's White Teeth came out. That was also the year that my book came out. I don't think these things are coincidences. I don't think they're causal, but I do think they're contextual. And so you don't always see the direct connection between these moments and their product. And and that's the kind of, that's the pollination that I'm talking about. I, I, I think I'd agree. I think for me, I see it as an intergenerational thing. So when I see how the young kids responded and organised to the BLM movement, so it's it, it seems... There have been like groups, I spend a lot of time online, so I find different groups who were like, would have nothing to do, well, you think would have nothing to do directly with Black Lives Matter, say they could be a K pop group mm. who like K pop exclusively, but they have aligned themselves to a, uh, a Black Lives Matter group and they're promoting it in solidarity. So there's, there's solidarities that are working in ways that I guess if you're a certain generation, you find hard to understand. Because they, it's a, we understand things in a kind of almost like a binarized way. So, Jetwood, Jetwood alive. <laughs> <laughs> see, it's, it was mad. It's, it's mad to see. And the only way that kind of makes sense and I, the kind of, the, it kind of links the kind of stuff that you've done as well is the same kind of pollination I saw in when I studied the alt right. Mm. Different groups that almost have nothing to do with each other kind of finding solidarities and moving mm. together in a almost sporadic kind of mm. way. But, if you look, if you look from a kind of a, a vantage point from above, it looks like an organic whole, but they're mm. not. They're very kind of different groups doing different things, but all trying to get a, a particular thing on the agenda or move forward. And I guess in the literature, they will kind of say it's shifting the Overton window, shifting mm. the opportunity of making more things acceptable. So I think that's what BLM has done. I think mm. post post June two two thousand twenty. Mm. I think as well, like, I think the pollination, that's such a good way of looking at it. And it's really helped me actually think about my own personal life and also structurally what I've sort of been seeing and trying to make sense of it, finding it sometimes unsettling, but also hopeful, but also exhausting (laughs) all at once. But it is like a pollination. Like, it's so interesting. And particularly thinking about like my experience growing up yeah in predominantly white suburban town in the West Midlands like similar to you Gary like I've spent a lot of time around white people like most of my most of my life and seeing those people 
who wouldn't have been apathetic towards racism basically like that's 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 it through and through like being apathetic or not necessarily caring going out of their yeah going out of their way to find way their own ways their own little clusters mm-hmm. of quote unquote caring obviously as you say Gary there's opportunism there's also difficult conversations that rely on like I don't know extracting late more from black people in a way like it's not it's not it's not a settled pollination it's something that's still like contested and contains dodgy things as well but it's there and Mm. it's manifested institutionally individually and like even seeing things like you've got black lives matter in the sticks you've got an organization Mm. of people that are operating across rural and suburbia like going around and getting white people that haven't necessarily been lived around or been around people of color to be like we're not down for the racism we're not down for Mm. Johnson's future for the UK like we don't want that and because yeah I know these people well and seeing them be like that I'm like okay maybe there is hope maybe yeah I mean there are two things that I think it also revealed sort of um wired to be hopeful so there is that I mean I'm deeply cynical generally but I also kind of think you know I, f- I feel like I'm the product of a kind of hopeful notion and therefore I want to go forward with that. Two critical things that I see. One is that I think th- that what this this moment did was expose how the weakness of our capacity as a black community, the kind of lack of structure. I haven't been in America for obvious reasons because of the pandemic, but that there they have the NAACP or the Urban League. They have the Black Church, um, which is often older than both of those. So they have these institutions that can kind of incubate, you know, in the kind of slower periods and they can keep things going. We don't have that. And I think that that exposed that. And you can't just wish that into existence, but you can arguably work it into existence. The other thing I saw, and this speaks very kind of keenly to what Ty was saying, and this I think we can do something about, generational rupture. Not not an argument, not a, not a feud, but that you couldn't even call it a leadership of Black Lives Matter because it was too kind of fractious for that. But the people, the individuals and groups who've been taking this forward are really quite young. They're kind of, you know, 30 or under. And... While there isn't institutional memory, because we don't have those institutions as I just out- outlined, there is kind of, um, there is movement memory. There is kind of the um, an anti-racist memory. There are people who were around fighting the anti-Nazi league or that kind of were involved in the anti-racist alliance or whatever. And I do think, and I, I want to, if I can find the time and the space, make this a bit of a project, is to create some kind of space for intergenerational dialogue. Not That's respectful. Not so that old people can tell young people what to do. Not so that young people can tell old people how old they are, but so that they can learn from each other, actually. I think that's important. It's the sharing of stories. And so Mm. I've only kind of started looking at my own family history, and that's recently because something just happened recently so trying to speak to my gran and asking her like trying to understand what it was like for her to be here 
Like I, I saw her as my as a child, as my grand, but she's lived a life, right? So she's traveled here during a particular time. She's lived a life, raised a family, shipped her kids over at different points in that time period and trying to understand. So I've asked my mum, what does she know about her mum? Not much. And I asked my, so I've asked all of them, what do they know about their mum? And the outside of knowing that that's their mum and she does motherly things, not much. <laughs> they, don't know, they don't know her as a person. Which is weird because I speak to my mum and I see my mum as my mum, but also she's lived a life growing up in the 70s and 80s, having me in the 80s and what that meant for her as a single mother. And so she, there's that dialogue there that exists, but mm. it, it stops at a certain point. So I don't really understand. And so how do we create those institutions that we spoke about when we don't really understand what happened it, mm. around that period? There's a kind of an ambiguous kind of mess. Mm. And, and I got a sense from talking to the young people involved that actually they are they're receptive to that idea. When I've talked when I've talked to the older people, I've had to kind of yeah, no, they're not they're not with it. They're not with it. <laughs> I'm like I'm 51, so I'm just going to own that. And when I've spoken <laughs> to kind of older people around my generation, I've had to kind of quieting them down because what they want to do is say, well, why aren't they doing this? And they should do it. And it's like, see, that's not going to be a conversation. That's They have dads for that. You know, mm. that's not what they want. And that's not what we need. Like, actually, they know a bunch of stuff that you don't know. They did it. You didn't. So actually, it's kind of can't come from a position of even mentoring do you know what I mean? It's a kind of it's, a, it's a wrong it's the wrong relationship. It's a kind of it's a horizontal yeah. relationship, not a vertical one. You said you want to do an intergenerational project. This podcast is an intergenerational project. You and Tiso, you you must be this hey, you must be this. I'm 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 forty two. I'm forty two. Oh, that, that was that, close. Does that make you think <laughs> <laughs> It's close. I'm not seven. So, like, we we always me and T. So we tend to broadly agree on most things, but we definitely sort of like have different ways of viewing things, and we learn from each other a hundred percent. And post BLM, we want to yeah, we want to take forward more because there are so many things that I learn from T, and but vice versa. I don't T. Am I allowed yeah. to say that you learn stuff from me? All the time. All the time. You know what the man is? It's all the time. So it's even. I think one of the things, as old people, we don't listen. Like I'm quick. We want to tell all the time. To tell. To tell. To tell. And especially within the black community, like some of my aunts. One of the arguments she gave to me was, "I'm 80." That was the argument. She said, "I'm 80. <laughs> Whatever you say, it doesn't make any sense." Yeah. And I was like, "Okay, but she goes, no, I'm 80." And she put that- the phone down. That reminds so, me of uh, my, my friend who was a teacher. He just, in a primary school, he just used to say, whatever they say to me, I just say the same thing back and then in my office. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want to do that, sir. You could not want to do it in my office. <laughs> yeah. I think that's stupid, sir, but it would be stupid in my office. I'm 80. That's my argument. And she said to me, I'm 80. And in the end, it was, I'm 80 and followed by the look. So don't don't be don't pursue it any further. We talking to Chantel. Sometimes we talk, and sometimes even the forms of music. So I might say about hardcore doesn't exist doesn't exist anymore. So Chantel's like, what are you talking about? To be fair, I don't, I don't hardcore. To be fair, no, no. I feel like there's another gap open up because I'm a, I'm a millennial. Like I'm millennial. Like I'm a, like a neo neoliberal 
yeah, like, do you know what I mean? Like I'm that era, but then there's the people that are younger than me. They're like my inspiration right now. Obviously, as well as the people's people that have come before that lots of the groups you were talking about, Gary, are definitely my inspiration. But yeah, the Gen Zers, they're like, they're not, they've had enough. They can't buy, they can't buy houses. They're online, (laughs) they're reading, they're anti-racist. Like they're, they're my inspiration right now, 100%. Because I grew up in the, I came of political age in the 80s. My first big thing that I was involved in, I joined the Workers' Revolutionary Party, which was a bit mad, but it was kind of quite exciting. And and uh, it was a minor strike, and then they were, they were defeated, and then it was defeat, defeat, two election defeats, then new Labour. So I was schooled in defeat and retreat and neoliberal. I was always had to be this kind of marginal character within that. Young people, even 15 years younger than me, say, who grew up with war and austerity and financial crisis and an entirely different understanding of sexual orientation and sexuality and the kind of certain things about sexism coming to fruition in terms of women being in certain leadership roles. And I do find that younger people are kind of just organically more sophisticated than that, that they get it quicker, that they have lived it. Um, not all of them, obviously, but... So it's not some kind of faux piece of kind of churchy humility when I say I can learn from young I actually do learn a lot from being around um, younger people. And um, this is not name-dropping. Well, I guess it is, but that's not the point of it. But that I interviewed Stormzy for GQ a while back, and I was kind of blown away by the ease with which he would talk about kind of things that took me kind of years to get to. The ease and the confidence, the sense of self-possession. It was really, really impressive. And so I do actually think that beyond what would seem like a kind of reciprocal, almost sloganeering, you know, we can learn from each other, that there are things that, because what I have, because I'm old, is experience. And that's not nothing. Experience actually counts. Yeah, we're not old. 51, so old. So, so, so. <laughs> I'm gonna say it's old. I'm gonna say it's old. So, but I have experience, so if, you know, that can count for something depending on how you interpret it. You wouldn't want to say I'm 80, that's it, you know. But there is something that I can bring, but there's also really quite a lot that I can that I can learn if you're receptive, if you keep your ears open. Gary, yeah. Just one last question. This episode is going to come out three weeks before the US election in the United States of America. What do you think is going to happen? And number two, what do you think we should be looking out for, thinking like transatlantically about this election? I mean, the headline that people want to know, I think Trump could win. Mm. And I don't think he will. That's exactly what I thought last time. So, you know, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) I think that one of the key things to look out for in the run-up is the degree to which we are seeing the fragility of American democracy in action. It was never particularly robust anyway, if you think of all of the felons who are unable to vote in some places, one in six or one in five black people, black men not being able to vote in some states. If you think of the money that's swashing around, the gerrymandering, the electoral college, there's all sorts of ways in which American democracy 
was deeply flawed. Now, of course, we can talk about British democracy, but there happens to be an election in America, so that's what we're talking about. But we've come to a new place now where the norms are being flouted. Trump, more than once, has called on his voters, his supporters, to vote twice, in person and in mail. He's defunding the mail service because of the pandemic, there'd be lots of mailing votes. He's defunded the actively, deliberately, he said it, defunding the mail service so it can't do the job. Roger Stone, I think, the, the yeah, guy yeah, yeah. who he pardoned, yeah. has said, well, if he loses, he should just impose martial law. A poll that just came out that showed that um, since this poll has existed, uh, which is... I think 30 years or something from Pew, the degree to which America's standing in the rest of the world has plummeted to kind of to rock bottom. So you have this election taking place in the middle of an economic depression, forest fires, trade war, pandemic, you know, racial explosion, and an active attempt to disrupt it, which will probably mean that we won't know the results, unless it is super clear yeah. in every way that we won't know the result. So one example of how they are trying to kind of um, are setting up a civil war, some strife, is obviously you vote in person. Those are counted on the day. There's about eight states where the computers are open to hacking, but let's leave that for now. And then there are all the mailing votes. Now, it could be that the mailing votes outnumber the votes on the day because of this extraordinary situation. So it could be that in a number of places, Trump is winning by a narrow margin or somebody else or Biden is winning by a narrow margin. And then the mailing votes come in and change results. Trump's spokeswoman is saying election result comes on election night. That's when we will know. Now, that's just not true. And it can't be true. It was never true anyway, if you look at kind of, you know, previous elections where they're close. So everything is being set up for a clash. So this election is, there's an awful lot of hype quite often about this is the most important election and the whole world's going to fall apart. This one really is about the kind of basic tenets of American democracy. And something like, it's something like 55% of Americans do not believe that the election will be fair. So you've also got very limited confidence. So there's that. The second thing to look out for is the. I believe that the Democratic candidate is incredibly weak. And the degree to which there is any silencing of a critique about him. So I want Joe Biden to win because it's an electoral contest. He is standing against this awful man even though Joe Biden has a terrible history of racism, terrible history like Anita Hill, NAFTA, um, cheerleader for the Iraq war, anti-Basic, I still want him to win. And to me, this should be a lesson for the people who were like, I cannot live in a world without Corbyn, with Corbyn, you know. it will The whole world will fall apart. Well, fine, now we've got Boris Johnson. Are you happy? This is a choice. And um, and the choice is clear. And I don't like the Democratic candidate 
But I want him to win. I want him to win clearly. I want him to win decisively so that the Republicans don't try this again on one hand. But I don't work for the Democratic Party and I reserve the right to be critical and have a critique of that man right up to and including polling day. And I don't believe that it does anybody any good to pretend that we don't see the weaknesses in him. Yes. And so this thing where people are like, be quiet because you'll rock the boat. Well, it's not my boat. <laughs> and and um, and frankly, the boat needs rocking. We are in, we need some, we need somebody, something that can meet the challenges of now. So then we have to put pressure on him and he has to know that we're here. And so we, and I think that there is a way of making it very clear who we want to win and having a critique of the person we want to win. And if you don't do that, if you say, I'm not going to say anything about, I'm not going to have any criticism of him because, I don't know, Arsenal for my enemies, you end up like the Trump people and the Bush people who don't want to say anything. Fine, if you work for the Democratic Party, if you're a Democratic Party operative, then there's kind of party discipline. So I don't. And as intellectuals, it's incumbent on us because the kind of policies and politics that people like Joe Biden have promoted over the last 30 years produced a world in which Trump could thrive. NAFTA, bowing to kind of racism at certain points, deregulation, privatization, all of that stuff made Trump possible. And and here we are. So, and I feel that the walls will start to close in on us the closer we get. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Who would you rather? It's like, I'd rather he won, but I'd also rather he was good. I'm in slightly mic drop. <laughs> Superb advice, critique, and ways of existing and thinking and being and organising. I just, I just think it's, it's sad that you can't, that it's got to this point, right? And this is what I fear, that this polarisation that American politics is, that's, that's the contagion. You mm. can see it with Brexit. There's a, a polarization of people's views. You can mm. see it around Boris Johnson, how he's handled the pandemic. You can see it even down to where people have their polarization around wearing face masks. Mm. This polarization where people can't see critique anymore. You're either deeply embedded on one side or the other. Mm. And, and in, in that environment, it creates soldiers, not citizens, right? The people yeah. are willing to do things. And that's scary. Very, very. Gary, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Gary, thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our patreon if not you can always support us by subscribing rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform